looking at chapter 2, and we're going to park just on verses 11 and 12. Just the verses 11 and 12 today. The Apostle Peter, who is the author of this book, was no stranger to suffering for his faith. Peter, while the Lord walked the earth and while he was walking with Jesus during his earthly life, Peter often suffered because of his own mouth, because of his own impulsiveness. But as Peter grew and as he understood the Lord better and as he he grew stronger in his faith, Peter continued to suffer, but he suffered as a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had walked with Jesus for three years and he had witnessed firsthand the rejection of the Lord. Peter had been a central leader in the formation of the first century church. And as such, he had been on a number of occasions threatened, imprisoned, and even beaten for his faith, all because he was a Christian and he was a preacher of the gospel. As Peter writes this letter, the ruling empire is Rome, and the emperor is Nero one of the most evil and brutal rulers in human history. Hostility towards Christians had already spread throughout the empire, and in just a few more years from the writing of 1 Peter, and Peter can see it coming, this hostility will become systematic. It will become focused and unmerciful, starting in Rome itself and reaching, as it were, to the ends of the earth. Peter is nearing the end of his life, and he himself will soon be crucified for his faith. He knows things are getting worse for God's people, and that hostility against them is growing. And as a well-known leader in the church, And as Peter looks back over the experiences and lessons of his own life, he writes this letter of pastoral encouragement and instruction to Christians on how they ought to think and behave as the world's hostility against them continues to rise. So he is, in essence, teaching godly people how to live with steadfast hope as God's people in a foreign land. And for this purpose, so far in the book of 1 Peter, all along his focus has been on the object of the Christian's faith. The object of the Christian's faith. And he has reminded God's people that in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a new identity, we have a new hope, we have an an eternal inheritance in him. And so as the heat in the world, if you will, begins to rise, and as Christians begin to feel this pressure, and as we we start to feel like like the earth beneath our feet is beginning to quake and, and even be pulled out, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen, and we might feel that we might have to stand up and do something drastic and do something different. Before we ever get to what Christians are supposed to do, Peter settles our minds by reminding us of who we know and what we are in him. And I notice this with Peter 
And I notice it even in the songs that we sang this morning. When the heat is turned up, how are Christians supposed to respond? And it really boils down to this. Keep doing what you're doing. And do it faithfully. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking into his word. Keep living faithful, godly lives, right? Give your attention to eradicating sin and to living a holy life according to Christ's character in the face of the world that hates you. That's what it boils down to. And that is the essence of what Peter is teaching us in these two verses this morning. And then from there, he's going to go on and he's going to teach us specifically how that might look as we relate to earthly governing authorities. We'll get into that next time. As it will teach us what that looks like as we try to be faithful employees, even when our boss hates us and mistreats us. It teach us what this godly life looks like in the home, even if our spouse is an unbeliever. And all along the way, the emphasis of what Peter teaches is Keep cultivating godly character and live faithfully. You don't have to overreact. You don't have to change your mission. You don't have to throw down your current tools and weapons and pick up something else in order to fight a battle. Stay faithful. Cultivate godliness. Look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. As we come to chapter 2, Verses 11 and 12, Peter begins to transition from this foundational focus on who we are in Christ and what we are in him, who we know. Now he's beginning to focus. He's building on that foundation. And on that basis, he's now beginning to focus on what are we to do as we live as strangers in the world. So let's look at our text. First Peter chapter 2. Simply verses 11 and 12 today and follow along as I read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Some of the most comforting verses for a Christian in the time of trial, the time of hostility, right? Don't go out and form a coalition and go to war against the world. Don't start trouble with people unnecessarily. Don't change tactics. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your behavior honorable among the world so that they will see your steadfastness, and some will believe. If you do a quick scan from verse 13 down through chapter 3, verse 7, you'll see that Peter applies that principle specifically to three areas of life. Our relationship to earthly authorities, our responsibilities in our work relationships, and then our relationships at home. And we'll get to that as we continue moving through First Peter, and there will be other specific applications along the way. But these are essentially the big categories. And Peter's point here is that in these three areas, as a model for everything else in your life, 
These are, as it were, three shelves in your life on which steadfast hope and Christ-like character are to be put on display for the world to see. These areas are essentially a summary of every aspect of our lives. And they are the basis for what Peter says in, in, in all of this is found in verses 11 and 12. So he calls God's people essentially to live honorably in the world. That is the focus of what we're looking at this morning. Honorable living in a foreign land. The context, as we've seen repeatedly throughout chapters 1 and 2, is our identity in Christ. As Christians, we belong to God. We are not our own. We belong to God. We have been set apart from this world unto God. We have been born again into his family. We have been given an eternal inheritance in Christ. We are no longer attached to this world, but our eyes and our hearts are on him. And with that in mind, Peter commands us to live honorably here and now in this world as representatives of God and his eternal kingdom. I'm viewing this passage and the following several paragraphs essentially as one big sermon. So against all the instruction I ever received as a seminary student, we have one main point this morning. You're supposed to have more than one when you have an outline, but this is all we're going to look at today, and we're going to get to point two next time, and, and so on and so forth. But this is what I want us to see this morning is simply the command to honorable living in verses 11 and 12. Now, when I say honorable living, I'm using that word honorable because it is found in verse 12, and then it is found twice in verse 17, that word honor. But we need to understand that that word is not describing something that is only conformed to the values of the world. It's not saying live in such a way that the world likes you. Okay? That's not honorable living. Sometimes honorable living means conflict. And we can't avoid that. But this is speaking about a way of life that is consistent with godly character so that even if there is conflict and even if the world hates us, it cannot deny that we are living consistently, that we are living according to the profession of our faith, that we are people of integrity and steadfastness and genuine hope. So a life that is honorable then is a life that is transformed inwardly into godly character and then outwardly into righteous behavior. We're going to look at what that looks like and how that works in the world. And so inwardly then, in verse 11, we see a description of the Christian's inward war. There is a war going on inside every one of you today. We read, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's great passion in what Peter says here. There's warm affection when he says, Beloved. It has the idea of dear friends, but it goes deeper than that. 
there is a deep and rich love from Peter toward these suffering Christians. It communicates that what he is saying, he is saying from a heart of, of heartfelt affection for these people and a great desire to see them remain spiritually strong. Beloved, I urge you. That's an earnest plea. That's not Peter dropping the hammer and saying, I command you whether you want to or not. No, this is Peter urging them. I appeal to you on the basis of what you know to be true and what you know is right. I appeal to you as the elect people of God who've received his grace, who are sanctified by his spirit and are guaranteed this eternal inheritance because you are in Christ, because you are not part of this world, because this is who you are and you belong to God, because you are devoted to him, I urge you to live in this way. And what is his appeal? He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The word abstain has the idea of restraining oneself. When we hear the word abstain, we might most often think of a governmental vote, right? Where there's yay, there's nay, and then there's abstain. We don't use it too many other places in everyday life. But perhaps a more accurate picture of what abstain really means in everyday life for us is the plate full of cookies on the counter in the kitchen that are calling our name all day every day and you saying I am abstaining from that I am saving them for Pastor Dan where I will take them home and do my best probably unsuccessfully to abstain see that's the idea behind this word abstain it means refusing to take part in a specific action or event. Here, it has the idea of refusing to yield, refusing to take part in the passions of the flesh. Now, we understand that as human beings, not every passion in the flesh is inherently sinful, right? Sometimes they are. Not every strong desire that a human being has is inherently sinful. But when the Bible uses a phrase like this, like the passions of the flesh, it is generally referring to the natural sinful desires that are constantly at work in us. Sometimes these passions are desires for something outright sinful. Other times, these passions are distortions of a good desire. They are a perversion of something or a misuse of something that might otherwise be good. So the passions of the flesh may not just be to murder somebody. The passions of the flesh could just be to lust after somebody. A desire, a natural desire that within the boundaries God has created is acceptable, but when misapplied and misused becomes ensnaring and sinful. We've already seen a snapshot of the sinful characteristics we're called to put away back in, in verse 1 of this chapter. When Peter tells us, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. We get a fuller snapshot given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the characteristics that are opposed to God and to his character and to life in his kingdom. And that's just a snapshot of what scripture says about sinful characteristics that we are to avoid. And with all of this in mind, there is a sense of urgency here from Peter to take this matter seriously because these, these passions are waging war against our soul. They're not just clamoring for attention. They are going to destroy us if we yield. They are waging war. They are seeking to control and to conquer the soul. The Apostle Paul describes this war in his own life. If you were to look at Romans chapter 7, and you see Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, explaining this war that's going on in his own soul. He, he's frustrated because the things he knows that are right, that he knows he's supposed to do, he says, I don't do them. And the things that I know I'm not supposed to do, the things that are wrong, I do them. And he illustrates well this spiritual tug of war that is going on in the heart of every Christian, longing to know and to please God, and yet battling every day with evil passions and ungodly characteristics of the old, unregenerate self. That, that constantly creeps up in us and tempts us. You know the battle, right? Peter calls us to take this war seriously. Not to lay down our guard. Not to lay down our weapons. Not to act as if ignorance is bliss. And if I just ignore it, it'll go away. No, he says take it seriously. Abstain from these things. Fight against those sinful passions. You know the battle, right? You've experienced it. I don't have to tell you that the battle is real. We face it every day. Every one of us does. It's a constant battle. But it's a battle we're called to fight. And it's a battle that we are equipped to win. Because we have the very resources of heaven itself at our disposal, available to us that enable us to resist sin and to pursue godliness. And what I mean really is that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God himself in us, changing our minds, changing our hearts, directing our thoughts and our actions. And as we yield to him, we are led into godly character and behavior. Again, going back to Galatians 5, it doesn't just list the, the characteristics we're supposed to avoid. The Apostle Paul describes, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you abstain from these passions that wage war against our soul? Walk in the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then we have the list of the works of the spirit of the of the flesh that I read to you already. 
But then he goes on in the very next verses, and he says in verse 22, but the, but the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the, here's the work of the Spirit. Here's what walking by the Spirit looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And he calls us once again, walk in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. So look at that list. And think about, okay, we pursue those when we gather as a church together. But when we consider love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control... Is that what you're pursuing in every aspect of your life? In every relationship? Is that what characterizes your life even when the world throws its fiery darts of hatred towards you? Even when you are lied about? Even when you are mistreated? Even when somebody twists the truth to take you down? To destroy you? See, that's what Peter's getting at here, and we're going to see that as we get into verse 2. But he's talking about this war that goes on. See, those are things that we know we ought to do, but how do we want to respond in a hostile world? I don't think you even have to answer that question, because I'll bet I know, and I'll bet it's like how I want to respond a lot of the time. We don't want to respond that way. But all these things are summarized and commanded from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's this war going on. And it's not just a war between kindness and unkindness. It's not just a war between lust and not lust. It's not even just a war between us and those who don't believe. This is a war between heaven and hell. Both forces are at work in us. And Peter is saying, I know the battle. I know it's real. And if you want to live a stable and hopeful life in this world, remember who you are in Christ and put away those things that used to characterize you and pursue those things that are godly. Who we are in Christ is a big deal. The sinful passions that tempt us are a big deal. And you cannot pursue holiness and sin at the same time. You can't. So this idea that Jesus is my Savior, but I'm going to live how I want, that is foreign to Christianity. That is foreign to the Word of God. Peter's call, his urgent and loving call here is for Christ's sake, flee sinful passions before they overtake your soul. Flee sinful passions and run toward godly character by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that is at work in you. And then that brings us to verse 12, where we see not only the internal war, but we see the outward conduct. The results of this internal war will 
overflow into the, the way that we live. But for those who belong to God through Jesus Christ, our behavior will stand out in the world. So Peter says, keep your conduct, this is verse, two, or verse uh, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That word honorable can also be translated excellent. It has the idea of being beautiful or fine or winsome or gracious or even noble. It speaks of being notable, visible, distinct in its goodness. The word conduct simply refers to our everyday behavior, the way that we live. And the phrase among the Gentiles is meant to show us the, con the context in which our everyday behavior is to be noted as honorable. The word Gentiles means nations. Often in Scripture it is used to refer to the distinction between Jews and everyone else. But here, the emphasis is more on the distinction between Christians and everyone else. As Christians, our everyday behavior is to be marked among non-Christians as excellent or honorable or notable for its uprightness and its genuineness, its trustworthiness and integrity. That is how the world is supposed to know. They might hate our faith. They might hate our Lord. They might hate everything about us. But one thing the world should not be able to do is look at us and say we are not people of integrity or we're not trustworthy or we're not faithful to what we believe or we're not true. They ought never be able to look at us and judge us that way. We are not opening up ourselves. We ought not open ourselves to accusations of lying or cheating or stealing or cutting corners or laziness or indifference to the well-being of others and so on. Rather, we ought to be known as upright people, dependable people, excellent people, kind, caring, compassionate people. All of this is for the purpose of pointing the world's attention to the glory of God and to model our Savior in the way that we respond to every situation in life. Peter says we are to live our lives this way so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're going to see this play out in the coming passages. And one of the most distinct things is when he talks about a wife who lives at home with an unbelieving husband. And, and he's, he's explaining to this wife on this basis, with this as the foundation, how are you supposed to live with him? Well, you're supposed to get up in his face every single day. You're supposed to confront him over every little sin. You're supposed to stand up in your living room in front of the TV and preach the gospel to him every day until he just burns with anger toward you. No, that's not what he says. He says, live a submissive and godly life to him. Why? Because you have no idea how loudly your personal godliness is going to speak to the world around you. 
And by your actions, you are going to bring that person to conviction of his sin, right? And he says the same thing regarding employers to abusive, or employees to abusive employers. And he says the same thing to people living in the context of a government that wants them dead. You see? Keep your conduct honorable, excellent. Be known for something they're not known for. Be recognizable as faithful to the Lord that you serve. Now, there is an important reality here that we must acknowledge. We must wrestle with this, and we must understand it. Peter doesn't say, if they speak against you. He says, when. This is a reality that many Christians have tried to ignore for a long time. Many churches and pastors have ignored this reality, and now Frankly, we're walking into an era of our own lives where this is beginning to hit us in the face and many Christians are unprepared for it. They don't know how to deal with it. This is the reality. The world is going to hate you. Okay? The world, we, we need to understand that. It doesn't matter how many hoops we jump through to make our church look presentable to the world and appealing to the world. They're going to hate us if we truly love Jesus. That's just the way it is. And if you watch the major storylines of our society right now, you'll get a picture of what that hatred is going to look like and how this is going to work. We see this in so many ways. When two groups of people disagree with each other, whether it's Democrats and Republicans, whether it's religious people or non-religious people, or whether it's one skin color and another skin color, or whether it's one lifestyle or another lifestyle, or whether it's even fans of this team and fans of that team. What does hatred look like? Well, when two groups of people disagree with one another's viewpoints and values, they seek to undermine each other in every possible way. They exaggerate details. They spin the truth. They misrepresent one another, twist the facts, and even make stuff up for the purpose of discrediting the other side, humiliating them, silencing them, and utterly destroying them. Or, if you want to use modern terminology, canceling them. That's exactly what happens in our culture. It happens in politics. It happens in social issues. It must be no surprise to us that it will happen to Christians. So, very plainly and simply, we ought not to be those kinds of people. Though it will likely happen to us. Jesus told us it would be this way. Didn't he? He says in John 15, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Aha! If the world loves you, that ought to be a warning. <laughs> but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
What were the accusations against Jesus? You ever thought about that? What did they come up with? Some said, He said He will destroy the temple. Did Jesus say that? No. He talked about the destruction of the temple, but they took that and twisted it and made an accusation against Him. He says He is a king. He makes Himself out to be God. Well, that was true. But it was twisted by his enemies to make him out to be a, a revolutionary or an insurrectionist. Every accusation against Jesus was a false accusation. Either an outright lie or a twisted misrepresentation of the truth, all to make him out to be something he wasn't. But there was not one legitimate charge that could be brought against him. That is the sort of picture Peter has in mind here for all who follow Jesus. Live in such a way that the world cannot legitimately level any charge against you in these matters. That was also the experience of the early church. Have you ever looked at some of the accusations that were leveled against the early church that brought on persecution? One commentator describes it this way. The early Christians were falsely accused of, rebel of rebellion against the government with such false accusations as this. Terrorism. They blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. Atheism. Because they didn't have any fashioned idols and they wouldn't worship the emperor. Cannibalism. Because in the Lord's Supper, they claimed to eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. Immorality. Because of their unusual love for one another. They were accused of damaging trade and social progress. They were accused of leading slaves into insurrection. This is very much the mindset that the world has toward Christians in some degree, in every generation. The world often sees us as a threat to the government, as a danger to society, or sometimes even just an annoyance to the ungodly social progress that's being pushed. We need to understand that as the world continues down that path, we cannot go with them. And because of that, they will hate us. As they reject God, they will reject God's people, and they will turn their guns on us. We need to understand that the world is going to hate us, and frankly, we need to be okay with that. I don't mean we need to be comfortable with that. It ought to grieve us. But we need to be very careful about giving our lives to going out of our way to try to keep up with the world so that we look good to the world. We need to be faithful to the Scripture. We need to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We need to cultivate godliness in our lives. And that means that there is going to be tension between us and the world. We will be mistreated for it. We've already seen examples of worldly institutions, even in our own day, working in this way in an attempt to silence God's people, to close down churches, to push Christians out of the public square and into the margins of society. I've been amazed at how many times in recent conversations among many very well-educated people and influential people in our society, 
that they do not seem to be able to distinguish between an evangelical Christian and a radical Muslim. Because ideologically, in their minds, we're the same. Why? Because the picture they have of Christians is a distorted, misrepresented picture. And this is going to continue. So that means that if we remain faithful to the Word of God, if we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, people will lie about us. They will falsely accuse us of any manner of ridiculous things. They will seek with all their might to silence us and to hinder our testimony. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm an alarmist, and I don't find persecution under every rock, and I don't want you to do it either. I, do, I certainly don't intend for this to be a source of fear for God's people. On the contrary, I want this to help us root ourselves in the Word of God and to stand confidently in Christ. I mention it here because Peter acknowledges that it is the reality of life for a Christian in a sinful world. And now he wants to teach us how to respond to that reality. And it's surprising what he says. It's surprising what he doesn't say. So when Peter teaches us how to respond, when the world turns its hatred toward us, I want to start by explaining what not to do, what he doesn't say. First of all, he doesn't say we're to go out seeking persecution or martyrdom. Willing, yes. Seeking, no. We're not trying to make ourselves so distasteful to the world that they are baited into mistreating us when they otherwise might have left us alone. No martyr walked through the streets of London and saw a stake over there and said, wow, somebody needs to burn on that stake. It better be me. That's not how martyrdom worked. They were willing to go. They weren't asking for it. We're not looking for ways to be combative people. That's not what Peter is teaching us here. That is not the spirit of the Word of God. And while we might need to take a stand, and we might need to do it strongly, and I firmly believe at some point we will, we're not doing it because we're looking for a way to be combative, fighting people. Secondly, we're not to respond to the world's hatred with the world's tactics. We are not trying, we're not called to beat the world at its own game. We're playing a different game. We don't return bad press for bad press. We don't make personal attacks. We don't fight for the sake of crushing our opponents and humiliating them. We don't even fight to force the world to conform to our values. That's not the spirit of what Peter is teaching here. We're not trying to crusade our ways into conformity by those who don't know Christ. We're not trying to beat people into submission. And third, on the other side of all of this, we're also not to just lay down and conform to the pressure of the world. We're not to just go along with the flow because after all, I don't want to be a combative person and I don't want to create problems. I don't want to ask for persecution and so I'm just going to go along with it and I'm going to conform to the world in order to reach the world. That's not what Peter is saying either. Many churches have tried to do this for a long time. Many churches have built their entire model on conforming to the world and doing what the world wants. And guess what? They're almost irrelevant now. 
because it has ceased being convenient to be a Christian in this world. And so people who are seriously trying to follow Christ are fleeing places that don't sound like Christ. Just as we are not called to fight against the world in a sinful way, so we are also not called to make peace with it either. We cannot just go along with whatever the world says. We cannot just accept its values, and we cannot conform to its new redefined truth. And so we must exercise gracious discernment, steadfast, bold wisdom. And if all of that is not what we are to do, then what are we to do? Well, once again, as Peter has done all, the, all along, we are first and foremost to turn our eyes to Jesus Christ, to set our hope and our minds on things that are above and to rejoice in our eternal inheritance. That's where this all begins. That must control our thinking. That must govern how we see the world around us. And then from that, Peter explains how we practically put that on display to the world, even if the world unloads its arsenal of hostility on us. He says we ought to go on living godly lives. Just as we would at any other time. So that the world might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's almost as if Peter is meaning to calm down anxious, fearful Christians. Right? If you've ever played sports, especially if you've ever coached sports, you kind of know how this works. You formulate a game plan. You put your players in the right position because you know this is, this is how we put our best foot forward. This is how we know we can best have a chance to win this game. Right? You know that. And then all of a sudden, adversity hits. The other team scores more than you thought they should be able to. And now all of a sudden, you're kind of, you've got your back against the ropes. And what does everybody want to do? What do you want to do as a player? What do you want to do as a coach? And what do all the fans in the stands want you to do? Change your game plan. Switch people around. Take him out, put him in. Do this and do this and change everything up. And if, if you've had experience in these sorts of game time situations, you know you might need, need to make some adjustments, but what? Stay the course, right? Make the little adjustments you might need to make in order to respond to a weak spot and to build up and to strengthen your team. But what? Stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. That's, it's like that's what Peter is saying here. Christians, you're not used to facing adversity like this. Life is difficult. Things are hard, and it's because you're a Christian, and you're going to be tempted to try this and that. You're going to go after your enemies. You're going to, you're going to try to hurt people. You're going to try to stand up and fight in the wrong way. You're going to be tempted to lay down the weapons God has given you and take up the weapons the world is offering you. And he's saying, don't do that. That is the worst thing you could possibly do. You want to live a steadfast and hopeful life in a land like this? Then stay on course. Keep your eyes on the goal. Keep the right weapons in hand. And it will be okay. In fact, he says, not only will it be okay, but some people will see it and will glorify God on the day of visitation.
as we deal with hostility from the world. We need to exercise great wisdom and care. We might need to take a stand. We might need to make adjustments. And there are passages of Scripture that teach us exactly how to do that. And when we have to stand up and when we have to resist uh, something from the world and we have to, and it gets a little more confrontational, then, then yes, Scripture teaches us how to do that. And we have examples. But we must be very careful not to get carried away fighting the wrong battles with the wrong weapons. The big picture, we're simply called to keep living a faithful Christian life. To follow the same commands, to adhere to the same values that we've already received. Fight sin, be holy, strive to be good and, 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 and submissive citizens here and now, to be good church members, to be good employees, to be good husbands and wives, and so on. That might not always divert the hostility of the world, but it will take away the legitimacy of their accusations against us. How many times have Christians put a bad taste in the world around us because we haven't lived this way, but because we've been jerks? It's happened. We need to be very careful not to follow that path. Some will see it and they will hate us for it. Some will see it and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now that's an unusual statement, isn't it? It's a a significant statement. In the Old Testament, that idea of a day of visitation is generally used to refer to the Lord's uh, uh, judgment. It's usually associated with God bringing down wrath upon those who are opposed to Him. But as we come into the New Testament, this idea takes on a little bit more of a positive tone. And it has with it the idea of redemption and salvation. I think what this is telling us is that by our faithfulness, by our humble and godly character that is on display in the face of the world's hostility, some will be brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are stories that we can tell from every era of church history that show examples of that exact thing happening. And we see it even today. So, What we're seeing here in these verses is the foundation for honorable living as strangers in a foreign land. That's how we need to recognize the lives that we live today. Living godly lives, displaying godly character, demonstrating godly affections in the the view of a sinful world. Now, that means we need to remember that we're not of this world. Yeah, we have certain attachments to it. We are humans. We are a product of our environment in a lot of ways. But we are first and foremost no longer of this world. We have been set apart unto God, chosen, as we say, as his children. And Peter says that in verse 9 of this chapter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we embrace this call, here's what this looks like. We put to death sin in our lives. Christians, do not ignore your conscience. Do not ignore the sin that creeps up in your life. Don't act as if you're better than the rest of us and don't struggle with it, because we all do. 
And I don't know exactly what that sin struggle might be for you. But don't ignore it. Take it seriously. Put sin to death. Remove the temptation if you can. Run. There is an urgency and an intensity here. But this isn't just about what not to do and what to put away. Fill your life with honorable character according to God's instruction. And live that way among unbelievers in the world, wherever you are. Live according to that character. And you know what? If you do, many people are going to hate you. They're going to resist. Now, people that you rub shoulders with every day, they might just not appreciate you. They might not mistreat you, but they just might not care about you as much. You might not be close. That's okay, too. You keep living faithful. You keep being honorable. You keep being a godly influence in their lives. But you know what? More and more, you, you know this, the trajectory of our society is that this pressure is going to build and build and build. We know that. Peter's instruction, keep being godly. Keep pursuing godly character. Keep cultivating honorable character according to God's standards. And you know what? You will be faithful to what God has put you on this earth to do. He's put you here to proclaim His excellencies to a world that can't see them without you. He has called us to live here and to make disciples. And you know what? He says, your faithful living will accomplish just that. Some people are going to believe. So keep on doing what you're doing, Christian. Don't panic. Don't lose heart. Don't get off course. Stay on track. So if you're among us this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to see today what kind of people we are. And I want you to see it, not just because I'm saying it, but I want you to see it because we're living it. We're not perfect people. We make mistakes. And the sad reality is maybe you've had some experience with Christians who have not been honorable. Please understand that that is not a picture of true Christianity. Look at Scripture. Look at the glory of God and the, the, the mercy and the grace that He has displayed to us and the sanctifying work that He does and the, the, internal, the eternal inheritance that He has guaranteed to us and, and, the, and the godly character. That is what we're supposed to be. And if you're among us today and, and you don't know Christ, this is what we long for you to be. We want you to see how great our Savior is. We want you to see that we are God's people and that this is who we are, not because we're better than anybody else, but because God has done this work in our hearts. He has forgiven us of our sins. We love Him, and He loves us. He has sent Christ to bear, our, bear sin's punishment in our place. He has chosen us as His children. He has led us to repent of our sins and to place our faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. He has given us eternal life, and we want you to have it too. And you can, the same way we do. If you're not a Christian this morning, I urge you, turn away from the empty and sinful things of this world and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Find in Him a gracious and powerful Savior. And Christians, take heart. Do not be anxious, but seek first 
the kingdom of God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Don't fight with the wrong weapons. Fight with these weapons that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Boy, that's a picture, isn't it? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Christians, you are the light of the world in Christ. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. As we finish our time together, we thank you for your word that brings such comfort. We thank you for the reassurance 